Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesday each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province, and information on their own trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. Today I have the opportunity of chatting with MBFI research technician, Leah Rodvang. Leah grew up on a cow-calf operation near Coronation, Alberta. Her family influenced her love of native prairie, which led her to studying range management at the University of Alberta. During her undergraduate degree, Leah competed with the U of A range team and worked with graduate students on their research. Since joining MBFI in 2016, Leah has been responsible for the data collection and record keeping for project and farm purposes. She oversees day-to-day research activities, maintains research tools and technology, and is developing skills in project design and reporting. Leah has developed the animal care program to standardize vaccination and treatment protocols for the farm. Leah plays a very important role in creating MBFI's grazing plans, as well as collecting data through precise record keeping throughout the year that is used in grazing studies at MBFI. In a past episode, she shared information with us on the topic of range management, as well as touching on extended grazing practices, which allow MBFI's cattle herd to graze most of the year. Welcome back to the podcast today, Leah. In this episode, we're discussing the fencing solutions used by MBFI for rotational grazing setups, as well as bat latches and other tools that assist with the grazing practices at MBFI. Can you give a bit of an overview of the grazing practices and principles that are used at MBFI for any of our listeners who are new to the podcast and haven't heard us discuss this previously? Sure. We use a few different grazing practices. We have summer grazing, which sometimes uses high density grazing principles and sometimes lower density, but we always rotate our cattle. We have some fall grazing, so we stockpile some forage for fall grazing. We do a little bit of annuals that we use for grazing. So either a swath grazing or we make small bales of green feed and graze on those. We have some corn grazing and then we finish out our year as a bale grazing site. Perfect. And for more information on that, listeners can tune into episode four, where we had Leah join us to discuss balancing range health and cattle production or episode seven, which was utilizing planned grazing to increase forage production with Pam Iwinchisco. How much of the year are cattle grazing and what fencing strategies are needed when cattle are grazing in the summer compared to the extended grazing from October to April? 
So our cattle are grazing year round. They're not kept in the corral at any point. So we have extensive fall, winter and spring grazing on top of our normal summer grazing. So we're using some form of electric fencing for all periods of the year. And our biggest difference for the extended grazing, I think is needing to account for the snow that's on the ground and the wildlife grazing. There's wildlife at all times of year, but having them in a concentrated area like your cornfield is just a different challenge. During a regular year, how many cattle herds would MBFI have grazing at different times of the year? And approximately how many head would be in each herd? Generally, we have two groups of cows, one at our Brookdale farm site and one that's either at our Johnson farm or our First Street pasture site. We have one group of replacement heifers and then our bulls. So our two cow groups, they will do their calving, their summer grazing and their fall grazing at each at their own site. And then the herd is consolidated for the corn grazing, which we just do to get the cows through the corn a little quicker. And then we split the cow herd after they're done on the corn and they go back to each site for their bale grazing. And they stay there until they've calved and then go back to their summer grazing. Our replacement heifers, we tend to keep them at Johnson Farm. They do get moved around if projects need them as they're very portable with not having any calves. And then after preg check, they're brought to the Brookdale farm site for the corn grazing as well. Our bulls spend all the time they're not out breeding at Johnson Farm, unless we need to have them moved for practical reasons, such as like frozen water. And how do you calculate your grazing days and the number of acres needed daily for each herd? In the summer, it kind of depends. If we're just grazing like a larger paddock, I will just look at what our historical records have. So we have quite a few years of records now. So that gives us a good idea about what carrying capacity is for each pasture. If we're looking at moving daily or more than once every day, then I do calculate things out. So we take some clippings in random and representative areas of the field. And we use that to calculate the approximate yield of the pasture. And then if we're aiming for like a 50% utilization or an 80% utilization, we factor that in. And so then we know approximately how much forage is available for the animals. And we weigh our cattle quite often. And from those weights, we calculate their animal units, which is just a factor of how much they're going to eat. So every animal unit requires 26 pounds of dry matter per day. So we can use our available forage, the number of animal units we have on that pasture and the size of the, the paddock to determine how many grazing cells we're going to need. And MBFI does have a grazing calculation handout on the website. When oh, I was going to give an example, so on First Street in 2022, the cattle were moving daily from about the end of June until early August. There was 72 pairs and just based on the amount of available forage and the variability of that, as well as the time of the year, they were getting between 1.8 to 3.6 acres per day. Perfect. Thank you. And I will make sure that I add the link for that grazing calculation handout into the show notes so that if there's people who are looking for it, then they can go there and get it. How Thanks. often are cattle moved at different times of the grazing season? 
for our summer grazing, it's very project dependent. So we have two major summer projects that are happening right now. The first one is at Brookdale. And while they're on project, they're getting moved every day. That's to help have like an even utilization across the pasture, whether they're grazing at a 50% utilization rate or an 80% utilization rate. And our first street summer grazing project is actually looking at how often we're moving. So half of the time they're getting moved every day and half of the time they're getting moved as often as needed for that paddock. So they get the whole paddock at one time. If the cattle aren't on project, we do rotate them. So try to move them every two to four or five days and try not to have them anywhere from longer than a week. But that depends on the number of cattle and the size of the pasture. When we do our stockpiled grazing, they usually get an entire paddock. And for reference, the largest area they ever get at once is 60 acres. When we do swath grazing, we usually do a one-day allocation. And that's just to force better cleanup. They use the whole swath more evenly. When we do corn grazing, we tend to do a three-day allocation. There's just a lot of biomass per acre for corn. So a three-day allocation kind of evens out your labor versus the nutrition for the cattle. And the last couple of years for bale grazing, we've been giving them one whole row at a time. So this year, 2023, bale grazing is 14 or 15 bales, depending on which site they're at. And this will probably vary a little bit between seasons as well. But what amount of time do you usually set aside for moving the temporary fencing? Yeah, I, for myself, I like to leave at least 30 minutes to set up a new temp fence. You have to keep in mind at MBFI, we're also measuring the area quite often. So nothing is straight really in a lot of our pastures. So we're trying to measure out like 1.2 acres. Sometimes that takes a little while. And then I try to allocate another 15 minutes if you have to clean up any temp fences. So to pick up the pigtails and roll up the wire. And then in the winter, it kind of just depends on how deep the snow is and things like that. But again, you're looking at 30 to 60 minutes probably to move fence. When you say that you're calculating or figuring out the amount of acres that you're giving them as you're doing that in the summer, how do you do that? We have a handheld GPS that if you just like drive around with the quad or the UTV, Um, in the area, it will tell you approximately how many acres that is. So we use that for basically all our grazing up till the bale grazing. Yeah. So summer grazing, swath grazing, corn grazing. Cool. What type of permanent fencing is used at MBFI? At MBFI, we use both barbed wire and electric fencing. The barbed wire is only used on perimeter fencing electric fence we've used for both perimeter and internal wires. And what would you say have been the biggest challenges with permanent fencing and how are they being addressed? I think one of our biggest challenges has been in designing an electric fence system that will consistently get power all the way out. Again, we have a lot of small paddocks, so it ends up being a lot of wire. We have also had basic issues with wildlife. I mean, anytime a moose goes through, it's kind of devastating. (laughs) And our fault finder has been essential. We have one that can talk to the fence energizer, so it can turn your fence on and off while you're in the pasture. 
And that's a huge help if you're looking for something that's wrong. Um, and then you can fix the fence without having to go back to the yard to shut everything off. That's handy. There's so much time saved when you don't have to drive all the way back to the yard, switch yes. it off and then go back out. How is temporary fence used both in the summer and the winter at MBFI? In the summer, temporary fencing is mainly used to allocate limited areas for grazing. In the summer and or fall, we may use temporary fences to mark the edge of fields that don't have a permanent fence. And in the winter, we're using our temporary fencing to limit the amount of corn or the amount of bales they're getting. And what would you say have been the biggest challenges with the temporary fencing and how are those being addressed? The biggest challenge we've had with the temporary fencing, again, is just like having enough power. So in the summer, way up in the northwest corner of Brookdale, we didn't have enough power. So we took out a suitcase fencer and hooked that up. And then that powered like one wire of the permanent fence and the temporary fence. And so that helped a lot. And then the other issue we've had with temporary fencing has been in the winter when there's a lot of snow on the ground and the ground is frozen. So the cows don't ground out when they touch the wire. So they just figure that out and they'll start walking through it. So we designed a two wire system with our fencing cart and our top wire is hot and our other wire is a ground wire. So that when they try to go through and they touch both wires together, they get a shock. That's a really good idea for us in winter grazing. That's always the biggest problem too, is that if they learn that they're not getting the shock because they're not grounded, then it's always the same ones that are out. Yes. Blue sky dreaming. If there was one thing you could change in the fencing design, what would it be at each farm? Um, the main thing again, would just be to make sure we have enough power getting everywhere, particularly at the Brookdale farm and yeah, just make sure that it's, it's clear. And in some areas, I think even just a one wire fence is sufficient. And what types of temporary fencing are used at MBFI? So we use a variety of products from different suppliers, as well as some farm made solutions. So. We have some poly wire reels, as well as some reels with aircraft cable on them. These reels are, are metal and we keep them because they seem to work a little better in the winter. We have pigtails for holding wire, as well as we have a 10 millimeter rebar posts with insulators on them. And we have a solar suitcase fencer and a Momo fencing cart. And can you describe the mobile fencing cart for the listeners? how it's designed and how it's used? Of course. So it's a solar fencing cart. So we have one solar panel. There's three 12 volt batteries that are hooked up in parallel. We have a solar charge controller, which is connected to both the solar panel and the batteries and keeps the batteries from being overcharged. There's a fence energizer that will connect directly to the batteries. We have a T-post for a ground rod, and then there's two cables, one to go to the ground rod and one to go to the fence. And we use this mobile fencer for our winter grazing. So we can either make the fence just hot or we can make 
put it to two wires and have one wire hot and one wire ground wire. And it pulls with the quad or the ATV, correct? Yes. It's just a little ATV trailer. Nice. In thinking about fencing design, can you weigh the pros and cons of using gates versus lifts in an electric fence system? Yes. So a lift is when you use a pole or a board to elevate your electric fence wire into the air, and then the cattle can be trained to go under that wire. For pros and cons, gates cost more. You need a good underground cable or other method to get the power reliably from one side of the gate to the other. You also have more connections, which just means more issues for losing power in there. For a lift, they seem to work really well. The major issues are training your cattle and they're easier if your fence is only one or two wires. We have two kind of types that we use, either a like really fast temporary method, which you can just use a, a board for that. I like to use like a two by six or a two by eight, and they should be at least six feet tall, but kind of how tall they can be depends on how tight your wires are. And you can just put them in and train your cattle to come to them. And that's fine. If you need to leave your lift in for any reason, you need to electrify it or the cows will rub on the board and push it over or break your fence post. So we have two types. One is just made out of pipe and it has some polywire strung through it so that when it's up, the polywire is touching the hot wire and then it's on the outside of the pipe down low. So if the cows rub on it, they'll get a shock. But we've also just attached some gate tape to the hot wire and then ran it down the pole and circled the pole. And they won't rub on that either because then they're getting shocks. And that kind of answered a little bit of the next question. So you've talked about what the lifters are made of at MBFI. How are they set up and what modifications have you had to make to them, if any, for them to work easier and more efficiently? Yeah, like I said, I either just use wood or like a plastic pipe is good enough. And if you're leaving them up, just make sure they're hot so the cows can't rub on them. Because even if they're nailed to the uh, fence post, the cows can even like just break that fence post off. When we set them up, it kind of depends where they're going. Some of our wires are farther apart and more slack. So we can just put a lift in between two fence posts. But quite often we will need to take the, an insulator out and put the lift right where the fence post is to give you a little more slack. And when you're working to train cattle to move underneath those overhead wires, how do you do that? Or what kind of suggestions would you have for producers who are trying to train their cattle to move underneath those wires? Yes. So the first thing is to think strategically about where you're going to put your lift pole for the first time. Corner is always good. I start at your lift pole. So make sure that there somebody is watching you while you put it in and like kind of walk through the lift pole towards your cattle. So like show them they can come in, make sure there's something enticing on the other side, either new grass or mineral or grain or something that's going to catch their attention. And then you want to limit the animals to an area, whether you have some temporary fence you can string up, or if you just have enough people to kind of create a loose area. And then you just have to take it really, really slow and use like pressure and release handling techniques to guide the cattle under that wire. And once you get cattle trained, they are very good. So if you have trained cattle, then you can use them to train your ones that aren't. 
we've been using lift poles for lots of years. So our calves tend to get trained with their mothers. And most of the cows now, if they see a board go up, they, their heads are up and they're coming towards you. We use the same kind of lifters with our cows too. And it's amazing how quickly they get used to that. And even that refresher kind of in the spring, when you start doing more of the rotational grazing again, Mm -hmm. the first time or two, they, it takes them a minute to remember what's happening. But then after that, like you said, as long as one cow sees it, then everybody's on board. Yes. We have had times where like one cow won't go under for some reason. And if we have the time, we do just leave it up. And if the, if the cows are just going like one fence, then they can just wait. And eventually they seem to figure it out. What are bat latches and how are these being used at MBFI? A bat latch is an automatic gate opener. They're solar powered and you can set a time on them. So if you use them with a spring gate, when the timer goes off, it will open the spring gate and it will spring back. We've used them at NBFI when we're moving multiple times a day, for instance, or this fall, especially we were using them to help with labor management. So you could spend a day setting up fences and then for the next like five days, all you'd have to do is, is check and shut gates. And can you describe the farm-made solution for more robust anchoring of the bat latches? Yes. So we built a frame. So it has two legs vertically with two horizontal crossbars. And then each leg has a foot that will pivot. So you can put the feet, we usually put them facing the electric temporary fence. And that just adds a lot of stability We have had to stake those feet down sometimes because the cows rub on them, but in generally they've been very useful and we're not trying to hang reels on a pigtail or something. And so then it's also really helped because that won't be electrified from any of the poly wire. It's pretty hard for it to touch. And so because of that, we've actually found multi-purpose uses for these stands. So we will use them anytime we need like an end for a a reel that we don't have a fence. So like if a reel ends up at a panel or something. That's handy. Like you said, when you're trying to hook a reel onto somewhere that doesn't have a post right beside it, it just either sags your other wire down or it doesn't, you don't have that conductivity that you need. Yeah. And they, you don't need to pound them very far into the ground. I don't think it's even three inches that we have and that's plenty and again mostly these stands are only the cows only have access to like each one for like one or two days have you had any challenges in training the cattle to using the bat latches yes so first off they have to be paying attention the bat latch will beep before it goes off So that's a really good thing to help them in their training. But if they can't hear it, like if it's really windy that day, or if the bat latch is in a spot that they might not notice, that can be hard because then if nobody's around, then they won't be there. So the things we've found to like help keep the cows moving through the bat latches is to put the bat latches near the water. Because then even if they don't hear it, they get used to like coming up for water and somebody will notice keep your bat latch times consistent. We have been moving a little earlier, like before noon, just because 
that gives us time to check. And if there's anybody that needs treatment or anything, we still have time. And do not go and check your cattle until after the bat latch has gone off. We really find at MBFI that as soon as they see a person, they're ready to get moved. So if their bat latch isn't supposed to go off until two, but you go out there at eight, they'll just all pile up in the corner for, you know, a few hours waiting. How have the bat latches increased opportunities for more advanced grazing techniques and additional range and pasture management? They've mainly introduced a little more flexibility for moving when we go multiple times a day and when we have fewer people. So especially in September, after we've lost all our summer students, they've been really useful. And have you seen any reduction in labor time required for moves with the use of bat latches? And if so, how much time are they saving on average? I would say at MBFI, they aren't actually saving us much time at all, but that is for a couple of reasons. The biggest one being that for MBFI animal care, we have to be checking every day anyway. So over your whole week, I don't think you're actually gaining anything, but that said, they are really helpful to gain more time on specific days. So if you are out there and you spend five hours setting up temp fences and bat latches, but then you only have to be out there for 15 minutes for the next four days, it's a really big help. Kind of be more effective too and being able to plan your labor for days. Absolutely. Like- absolutely. If you were in a situation where you didn't go out to check your cows every day, you'd definitely be saving time versus mm-hmm. like manually moving them. That's just not something we can do for our animal care reasons. What other tools or equipment do you use at MBFI to assist with fencing setup? I've talked about our fault finder, so that can be really useful, especially if your polywire is getting old, checking on both ends, making sure that you're getting power all the way through your temp fence and through the handle. We have a handheld GPS to estimate the area that the cattle are being allotted. In the winter, when we're bale grazing, we use bale spears. So those will poke directly into the bales and then we're less dependent on trying to get through the snow and things like that. And then another huge thing has been that second wire that we use in the winter to ground the system. And you've kind of talked about this already. What tips or tricks do you have for winter fencing, thinking specifically about the frozen ground or the amounts of snow? Yeah, the frozen ground plus snow is one of our biggest challenges. And that's what actually led us to the creation of our solar fencing cart, because having the ability to have that one hot wire and that one ground wire just greatly decreased the number of fence jumpers line, like immediately. We're also, we currently are using rebar with insulators rather than pigtails. So instead of having to like drill a hole and then try to get a pigtail in, we just use a three pound mallet and bang that rebar post in. Even a couple inches is plenty in the frozen ground. And then if you just use a little pipe wrench, you can start to circle the rebar. And once you get it moving, you can pull it up. And this does seem to work better for us than a drill and step in post. Plus the advantage is it's really easy just to put two insulators on that rebar, one for our hot wire and one for our ground. What have you observed in the relationship between grass utilization 
and the timing or frequency of cattle moves? In general, the smaller area you allot your cattle, the more even that utilization is going to be. So if they only get one acre, they'll more likely to clip it off all at the same height than if they're getting 10 acres. And we see this both in the pasture and in things like the swath grazing, where if they get like only their one day of allocation, they'll use the whole swath, the grain and the straw a lot better than if they get say three days allocation. And this is something that I think is important to just keep monitoring because as they like graze, it's going to change like throughout the time of year and things like that. And is there anything else you can think of that you'd like to share with listeners on this topic or any innovative or interesting fencing solutions you can think of that we haven't already discussed? I think if you talk to people who do a lot of fencing or go to fencing clinics, there's always people with interesting things to say um, that have some new ideas. That's a good point. Just kind of listening and talking with other producers. People often find a way to make things work and it usually isn't the way that you would think of as the first options. I was reading one time about somebody who'd made a, an automatic fence lifter by like using a four liter milk jug and they just like poked a hole in it. And then when the water all dripped out, the lift would go up. I'm pretty sure I've seen that somewhere. Yeah. So like low tech, but it was working (laughs) for them. (laughs) Yeah. Are there any resources you can think of that would be helpful to share with listeners about fencing solutions or setups or the benefits of rotational grazing? For fencing in particular, Gallagher has a power fence systems manual that has a lot of information, just on like how to set up a fence, everything from permanent electric fence and like different classes of animals um, and things like that. I'd also highly suggest you read your manuals because it was reading a manual that actually led us to designing our solar fencing cart because we were thinking, you know, there has to be a way we can get around this. So we read the manual and that was what we came up with. Again, if you have any fencing workshops or you can talk to your neighbors, I always think that's really valuable. And I'd say, please keep an eye on the NBFI projects. We're running two summer projects with intensive temporary fencing. So we have the one looking at different utilizations and the cattle are getting moved daily. The other one, which I think is going to be really interesting and like relevant to the labor side of this podcast is it's looking at the frequency of of moves compared to the labor and compared to any changes that are happening in the vegetation. So what does moving daily look like versus moving through the whole paddock at once? Interesting. And I'll try and find a link if there is one online for the Gallagher fence manual that you suggested there and see if I can add that into the show notes as well. I'm sure it's available online somewhere. It must be, but I just have one in the office that I was staring at this morning. And if listeners want more information, they can always email the information at mbfi.ca email account, and one of the MBFI staff will get back to them. Thank you so much for joining me today, Leah. I really appreciate you coming back for another episode. Thank you. Nice to be here, Chantel. (laughs) We wanted to let listeners know that this episode was prepared and recorded in January of 2023, as I'm taking a short leave from MBFI. Because of this, some of the conversations may seem like they are relating to past information or slightly out of context with the current time. 
We will resume regular recordings in the summer of 2023. Thank you for your patience. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, Ducks Unlimited Canada, and the Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the on-farm projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at mbbeefandforage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project supporter, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. We've got lots to share.